Amen. Amen. Yes, good morning, everyone. So it's really good to be with you this morning. Um, yeah, as Caleb said, my name's Joe, if you don't know me. Um, and we're on the second from last uh, talk from our Matthew series, uh, which we're calling Go. Um, <clears throat> right, so the Scottish National Party's best hope uh, is how Scotland's finance secretary, Kate Forbes, has been described by some. Uh, you may have seen in the news uh, after Nicola Sturgeon resigned as First Minister uh, in the Scottish Government, the leadership race between a few individuals has been taking place. Uh, so Kate Forbes has been described as a Highlander, uh, intelligent, likely to understand the desperate call for infrastructure spend. Uh, but despite her outspoken commitment to democracy, the law and the aims of her political party, uh, she has suffered significant setbacks in her leadership campaign due to the views she has expressed on a whole range of issues um, as a result of her Christian faith. So we're not here to discuss differing views on an independent Scotland this morning, um, but it serves as an example where faithfulness to Jesus, where holding on to what you believe with conviction, has come at a cost of comfort, uh, with opposition from friends and family and associates. Uh, we heard from Ben last week uh, how much God loves us as his children, how he cares for us and provides for us. Um, I heard that described uh, this morning as good cop. <laughs> so in this next passage, uh, Jesus is going to show us the identity crisis we all face. Um, as we look at who is Jesus, who am I, uh, and lastly, who is worthy. Who is Jesus, who am I, and who is worthy. Um, so if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 10, uh, and this is from verse 32, uh, where Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Uh, so let's pray. Yeah, Father, I, I just really want to acknowledge from the top here that these are difficult words. This is a tough message. And I just want to pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace, the humility, to, to kind of navigate this and work out what you might be saying to us today. And Lord, would you be present with us by your Holy Spirit, helping us to understand what you have for us today. Amen. Amen. Okay, so first then, we're going to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So he says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So the word acknowledges here means an open declaration of deep conviction. Uh, in the original language, it's a combination of two words, same and speak. So same speak. Uh, it's the same word that's translated elsewhere as confess, 
Uh, so sometimes speaking of us as confessing our sins to God. And essentially, it means saying the same thing about something as God would. Same speaking, the truth of the matter. So with sin, it's an acknowledgement before God that he says whatever it is, is sin. And we're aligning our thinking with his. You say this is sin, and I agree. No ifs or buts, no excuses. I'm same speaking. And with acknowledging Jesus, it's similar in that it's speaking the truth before others about who Jesus really is. Aligning our thinking, or perhaps who we wish he was sometimes, with who he says he is and the truth that he speaks. God is the only one who gets to say who he is, and we have a choice to agree or same speak or distort what he says, which comes at a great detriment to us. Because Jesus says if we acknowledge him before others, he will acknowledge us before his Father in heaven. Where previously Jesus had referred to God as your Father, earlier in this Matthew passage to his disciples, here it's my Father. Now, this is an expression of his authority. Because this country, um, this nation, has a long, vague, Christian-ish history, there's an assumption made in our, uh, in our culture that if there is a God then all people are his children by virtue of being uh, human beings. Uh, it's not true. Um, it overlooks the adoption that takes place when you become a Christian. All people are made in the image of God and are equal in dignity and value. But not all people are God's children, and Jesus is making that point here. It's those whom he, as the Son of God, as we heard this morning, acknowledges before his Father that are children of God. It says in the first chapter of John's Gospel, uh, but to all who believed Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. To become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. And note the parallel in the Matthew passage here as well. This is a great deal for us. If we acknowledge Jesus before mere people in their frailty, he will acknowledge us before God in heaven. The word heaven in the Bible, it literally just means sky or the skies. Um, but he's not saying that God lives in the sky. Picture the cartoon image of uh, an old man on a cloud with a harp. Uh, heaven is used as a kind of shorthand almost uh, to refer to God being the one above it all, the, the highest power, the greatest and most glorious one in the greatest and most glorious place, in God's place. And there we will be acknowledged by Jesus. But there's another side to the coin, because if we disown Jesus before others, before mere people in their frailty, we will be disowned by him before the Father in heaven. So the disowning mentioned here is about uh, denying Jesus as Lord. It's a kind of opposite to same speaking in a sense. So it's twisting, distorting, denying, rejecting him. And John, again, says a similar thing uh, in his gospel in chapter 3 from verse 16, which will start with familiar words for many. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the same idea. Believing in someone in Jewish thinking wasn't like some sort of vague intellectual, yeah, I believe in Jesus, whatever. 
It's about being faithful to someone, committed to them, obedient to them, and looking to them for the truth of God. And as Bridget brought this morning, it's not just a belief in something, it's, it's a trust, there's a relationship there. John's use of believing here is like Matthew's acknowledging, and John's does not believe parallels Matthew's disowns. So there are eternal consequences to this choice. This is how God has loved the world, by giving Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. So we have a choice to make. Will we accept Jesus as he is, or will we make our own version? Will we accept him or deny him? Will we receive him or reject him? Faithfulness to Jesus is about loyalty and allegiance. It's a radical choice affecting all of life. So back in the Old Testament, after God gave Moses his law for the people, uh, he said this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, an ongoing, open, plain declaration in front of people that makes it obvious we are loyal to God here. We are citizens of the kingdom of God and we serve King Jesus. So is it obvious to the people we meet that we are Christians? Are we acknowledging him before others? Paul says in Romans 10 that if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. And we, we all get this wrong often, right? Not every lapse or failure or missed opportunity has the last word. These 12 Jesus is speaking to all denied him and fled from him at the time of his greatest need. But if you've never known Jesus, come to him and he will meet you. If you've wandered away, come back and he will receive you again. If you're walking with him, there is need for an ongoing faithfulness to him. And to consistently deny Jesus, as he says, is to be disowned by him. So we've asked, who is Jesus? And as the passage goes on, we're going to ask, who am I? So verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth, says Jesus. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So can we just acknowledge from the outset, this is quite a shocking statement to make. You've not come to bring peace, but you're Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And that's true. But the way to peace is not through the avoidance of conflict. We shouldn't seek out conflict, but we should expect it. Jesus has already warned of persecution earlier in this passage. So we're faced again with the same choice. Will we same speak, Jesus? Or will we try to claim him for our salvation while clinging to the world around us for comfort? Are we willing to stand for him? Who he is, what he taught, what's in his word, what he's done, what he will do. Are we willing to stand for him 
at a cost of comfort. Jesus here is speaking of the consequences of his mission. He's speaking of the disintegration of society, division between people, and disloyalty among even family. The Bible uses the word sword to mean different things in different contexts. Uh, Here, the sword spoken of is one of division and separation. It's not about armed warfare. Uh, The use of violence to advance the kingdom of God is strictly forbidden in the New Testament. We're to lay down our lives for the sake of others, not take the lives of others for our sake. We can see from the language here that the division isn't caused by any personal failure on our part. We wrestle with this, don't we, sometimes? It's not about failing to say the right words or do the right thing. It's directly caused by Jesus himself. He is the one who brings the sword of division. Where he speaks of turning a man against his father and so on, um, he's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Micah in chapter 7. So in context, Micah's describing the sinfulness and rebellion of the nation of Israel uh, in the days of a king called Ahaz. He says, What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. So Micah here has a poetic description of those who are good at doing evil, we might say, following their own desires. And so God's judgment comes, the consequence of which is the tearing apart of the nation down to the most intimate family relationships. God's kingship, his rule and his reign have always provoked a violent response. And Jesus is using Micah as a parallel. The threatening situation in Micah's day speaks to the difficulties of an age where there are those who follow Jesus and those who don't. So this is where the rubber meets the road for us, isn't it? So we might lose family, jobs, social status for following Jesus. We are not promised material prosperity here, but difficulty and division. Loyalty to Jesus may cause conflict in families. Maybe that's your story. It was Jesus' story too. His own brothers opposed him. For him, literally, the men of his household were his enemies. Whenever Jesus asks something of us, he's usually already done it on our behalf himself. In the ancient world, a household was a broad term. It included wider family, servants, slaves even, close associates. So for us too, there may be conflict in family, but also from a culture around us which, have you noticed, is growing increasingly hostile towards us. The writer Theo Hobson um, has noted that uh, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. Those who refuse to celebrate 
are condemned. I'll read that again. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. Those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. And to be clear, he's, this writer is saying that this is progress, this is a good thing, we're moving in the right direction. Well, many of you um, will be familiar um, with John Mark Comer, pastor and author over in Portland, he's written a number of books. Um, he responds to these specific comments by uh, Theo Hobson, uh, and he says this, I can only wonder at God's emotional response to the redefinition of good and evil in our society. A society where lust is redefined as love, marriage not as a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but a contract for personal fulfillment, divorce as an act of courage and authenticity rather than the breaking of vows, the objectification of women's sexuality through porn as female empowerment, greed as responsibility to shareholders, gross injustice towards factory workers in the developing world as globalism, environmental degradation as progress, the deracination of once thriving local economies as free market capitalism, racism as a past issue, Marxism as justice. As it was in Micah's day, where those good at doing evil follow their own desires, so Jesus forewarns his faithful followers that he has not come to bring peace but a sword of division and separation. Okay, so think of it like this. Can I get that table? Is that all right? We have to. Right, can you see that over there? Yeah. Right, bear with me. You're not expecting this. It's already good, isn't it? Pretty sure, whatever you're thinking, you're wrong. <laughs> right. This is a piece of fish. See, I told you you were wrong. Um, I hope you can see this uh, online. And do remember to like and subscribe for more content from the Gateway Food Channel. <laughs> so this is, this is a, a haddock loin. Yep. Do you know when you, you come up with an idea and you get to it and you're like, hmm. <laughs> okay, so we're the fish, okay? Go with me on this. We're the fish, and the skin of the fish is how we fit in comfortably in a culture that has, by its own uh, admission, redefined good and evil. So the skin on the fish means that it looks the same as the other fish, uh, it fits in, it can swim with the shell. I think, Mark, we've got a picture um, for this, just to distract people from the fish in my hand. Thanks. <laughs> so the fish can swim with the shoal, it can move as one with the tide. The fish is comfortable in its skin. You might say it is at peace. Okay, now I grew up in the south, and for those who come from the south, uh, when you get fish and chips, it normally just comes with the skin on. Um, I didn't know that was an issue for many people, uh, having moved to the north of England. It turns out lots of people are really quite 
put off by the idea of leaving the skin on the fish when you have fish and chips. Uh, and my daughters are Yorkshire born and bred, and they cannot abide skin left on the fish. Okay, so Jesus, when he came, did not come to leave the skin on the fish like a southern softy. He came to bring peace. Uh, he did not come to bring peace, sorry. He came to bring a sword. Now, I don't own a sword, sadly. Um, I do own, well, we have a, a, an antique fencing foil at home, but I'm planning to eat this later, so I didn't fancy that. Um, so this is a knife just as a sword. So Jesus came to bring the sword. Right, so what we're going to do, he says, is cut the skin off the fish. So what Jesus does is he doesn't let us leave us with that, that worldly coating. I need to get in this first bit here and then it'll start to, there we go, come on. This is the wrong knife for this, but I thought it would be, <laughs> I thought it would be easier to see it online. Ah, come on. I've honestly taken the skin off. Many pieces have had it. Let me in. You get the idea. You cut the skin. He cuts the skin off the fish. It doesn't, it's not a comfortable thing. It makes us stand out. I am making a right mess of this. Here we go. Here we go. Don't worry about my fingers. Here we go. Right. It's come in. It's come in now. I mean, this only serves to illustrate my point. It is a painful process. <laughs> it brings shame and embarrassment. You second guess yourself. Right. A little bit there. Right? The fish is skinned. So this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we willing to stand for him at the cost of comfort? Are we willing to have that skin removed that makes us stand out as his believers, his followers? Right. This is, uh, this is a waterproof lining, so I'm going to sort this out later. <laughs> right, so we've looked at um, who is Jesus. They are seamless. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you. And we've looked at who am I. So if there's any time left this morning, let's lastly turn to ask... Who is worthy? Who is worthy? So Jesus says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Okay, so anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is another big statement, obviously. Jewish disciples were devoted to their rabbis, uh, but this is not the normal level of allegiance for a rabbi to ask for. It was always understood that family still needed to come first. So once again, we're in a place uh, with Jesus' words where we aren't left with any happy middle ground. Um, as New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says here, he's either Messiah or maniac. This is a big ask. It's not about rejecting your family because you have become a Christian for the sake of it. The Bible deeply values family life. And one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament is to honor parents. 
But again, it's an issue of allegiance and priority. It's anyone who loves their family member more than Jesus is not worthy of him. So what does it mean to be worthy of Jesus? Well, quite a nice modern translation I've found of being worthy of Jesus is that you've got what it takes. Um, Or to flip it, as Jesus does here, if you place a higher value on any other relationship than you do on your relationship with Jesus, you're not going to have what it takes. You're not going to be willing and able to receive him and the kingdom of God. The attempts of others and of the worst parts of ourselves to suppress our seeking first of the kingdom of God must be resisted as we continue to choose to put him first above all. We're told to lose our lives for Jesus' sake. And the word sake here just means because of him. Lose our lives because of Jesus. So the word life uh, actually translates uh, the Greek word psuche, which is where we get our word psyche, like in psychology. Uh, We use it to refer to the mind and our thinking, which is right. Um, But the Greek also includes the life and the soul. It's closely linked to the heart and the inner person. In other words, this is really getting to the core of who we are, our identity. And the call from Jesus is to lay down our quest for identity outside of him. Whether that's an identity we build for ourselves or an identity spoken over us. The Bible shows that ideology becomes idolatry, but the world says you are who you vote for politically. The Bible describes gender as male and female and sex in terms of behavior, but the world tells you to define reality by your feelings and embrace your sexuality as your identity. The Bible says all God's people are clothed in the purity of white linen, but the world holds everything you've done against you and refuses to believe in change. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love, but the world cancels us for the things we say and the things we believe. It's no wonder if we don't fit in here. And so we take up our cross and we follow Jesus. And this was a vivid image in the first century. Crucifixion was recognized as the cruelest and most socially disgraced form of execution for convicted criminals. It was described uh, by the Roman statesman Cicero uh, as the most cruel and revolting punishment and by the Jewish historian Josephus as the most pitiable of deaths. So the condemned would take up or carry their cross through the streets to public mockery. And Jesus later applied these same words again to his own impending death by crucifixion. So there is perhaps a literal martyrdom here, a physical laying down of one's life for Jesus. That was certainly the case for many in the early church. And it continues to be so for many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. But it can also be taken as an exposure to death. In other words, self-denial. When Luke speaks of this passage, he he says, take up your cross and deny yourself. It's that same idea. It's kind of fallen into common usage, hasn't it, that we all have our cross to bear. Which, by the way, is not that there are three people ahead of me in the queue and Morrison's. It's about dying to self, spiritually and emotionally. In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul prays, uh, says, sorry, 
I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, it's not my life anymore. It's his. We take up our cross and follow Jesus towards death, which means less of me and more of him. Less of me and more of him marching on. Because as we acknowledge him, as we same speak him, he acknowledges us before his Father in heaven, and we are known by God as his children. And we share in the love of God as the family of God, brothers and sisters in the church today, united in Jesus with those who have gone before us and those who will follow after. So as, as the band comes back up, that's all right, please. Um, I want to pray for us. Father, I want to acknowledge this morning all the stuff that you have been doing in me as I've been preparing this. I want to thank you for your words, Lord Jesus, the the word that you give us to warn us, to arm us, to prepare us for what you would have for us. And I thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us unaided. You don't just say, oh, it's going to be hard, and off you go. But Lord, you have gone before us. I thank you that you went to the cross for us. I thank you that you rose in victory to new life. I thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, to empower us, to equip us. Lord, would you, this morning... You know my heart, Lord. I'm not here to condemn anyone. I'm not here to try and make anyone's life difficult. But Lord, would you give those with ears to hear what you would say to them this morning? The grace, the strength, the courage, the endurance. Would you comfort those who mourn? Would you heal the brokenhearted? Lord, would you be with us by your spirit as we keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Lord. Amen.